Cape Talk. Plan B. Rebecca Davis. Hello, Becca. Hello, John. Front page of the afternoon edition of the Argus, Rebecca. I'm not sure if you will have seen the stories. I'm not sure if it's made the wires. But Senzomiyewa's family is considering legal action to compel the murdered goalkeeper's girlfriend, Kelly Tukamalo, to hand over his belongings, ranging from clothing to two vehicles. It's a particularly nasty sidebar to the murder of Senzo Miyiwe. We had uh, Senzo's father saying she wasn't well. Kelly Kamala, the girlfriend, the mother of one of the children, wasn't a, um, welcome at the funeral. A family spokesman has subsequently said she is welcome. People say things when they are in pain and mourning that they don't really mean. But this is, it's, it's, it's unpleasant. It really is, John. I found it really disturbing. I mean, I've been following it just from, from the UK. But just from what I've seen on social media, I mean, people have been tweeting at me, basically suggesting that in some way, Kelly Kamala brought his death upon him in all sorts of strange and unlikely ways. And just this notion that, I mean, I don't know a lot about Stenzamayo's personal affairs, but it seems to me that as, a, as an adult, as a consenting adult, he was fully in control of his personal relationship. And I really failed to see why it is Kelly Kamala who is attracting this astonishing I, and I'm actually reminded, John, of the situation when Mampela, Mampela started running politically and people brought up the fact that she had been Steve Biko's mistress. But again, we saw the same double standard where nobody apparently was suggesting that Steve Biko was, you know, attracting moral reproach for having had an affair. It is simply the woman on the side who, for some reason, has to shoulder this entire burden. Is it not m- just more than people looking for meaning in an essentially meaningless act? I mean, his, his father's point of view was that if he hadn't been visiting Kelly Kumalo, he might well be alive. And I said on the radio yesterday, when you're in the state of grief that he is, it's difficult to say to him, well, that's logically unsound because it could as easily have happened to him visiting his wife or c- leaving an Orlando Pirates practice. No, exactly. I mean, I think we can all see how that kind of reasoning just doesn't hold up. It could have happened to him anyway. I understand that people, when they are, as you say, when they are in grief, when we're all obviously nationally very frustrated by the senseless death, that you do try and, and search for meaning in it. But the, the way in which Kelly Kamala has been singled out, just I, I really find it offensive. I mean, her friends are saying she's too scared to leave the house. This is, let us remember... The, the woman who is the child of this man. I mean, one can only imagine her own extraordinary grief and the fact that she is in some way being held as if not entitled to that grief, but beyond that is in some way culpable for causing his death just is repugnant to me. And I, I really, my heart is out to Kelly Kamala. And then um, let's move to a story out of the UK, but which has international relevance, uh, including South African relevance, uh, the war on drugs, which is a war as unwinnable as the war against terror, about which we've been talking with Shami Chakrabarti. Uh, The latest British Home Office report on drugs, critical finding, no evidence of a direct link between the harshness of penalties in a country and the number of drug users in that country. That's right. So this is one of the... um Best, most longitudinal, widest studies done comparatively of drug policies in 11 different countries. And as you say, they've found that there's just no link between a tough government criminal justice approach to drugs and people's likelihood to use or not use drugs. And it suggests, critically, I think, that rather than government policy being the biggest influence on drug use, culture and social pressure 
is actually likely to be a far better predictor of whether people will use drugs. And I think um, what they suggest as well is that a better way forward when, when dealing with the scourge of drugs may be to treat uh, a, a social issue, a health issue, rather than a criminal justice issue. So just to move away from this obsession with criminalizing possession, for instance, in small amounts of drugs and look at it in a wider sense. Because they make the point, too, that in the UK, for instance, they, it's hard out the jail. You know, the, the stop and search policies in London disproportionately target black youth, which fosters social, you know, social tensions as it is. And I think it's interesting also because these, these, are, these, are, these findings are unlikely to be received very happily by government because, you know, the perceived wisdom is that cracking down on drugs fixes it, and it clearly doesn't. And then we talk a lot about social media. Some of us use social media more than others. I look at Rebecca Davis and Jean-Michel as in the more than others camp and me as in the less than others camp. But we're always we're always trying to sort of separate the the fun and the essentially banal use of social media from the potentially valuable use of social media and the Samaritan app which about which you told me about which I'd not heard before is in that latter category potentially useful use of social media. It is interesting so the Samaritans is a mental health charity and they have a helpline obviously that you can call if you are feeling suicidal they've introduced a, an app called Radar which basically scans your Twitter feed if you allow it to, if you activate it, scans your Twitter feed for tweets containing keywords like depressed, no one to talk to, lonely, and then will send you an email alerting you to that. So their, their, their rationale is that um, in a perfect world, you would never miss those tweets, particularly from people you care about, but realistically, because we're all subjected to such a torrent of information on social media and Twitter and Facebook, you would are likely to miss some of that, and this is their way of, of alerting you when it happens. And Rebecca, tell us about your visit to a group of young British Muslims who were discussing their experience of being young and Muslim in the UK. It was, I mean, in 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 one in one, in one extent, it was it was sort of chilling, John, because their their experiences of everyday stigma, the stigma that has attached to their parents, and they were saying, particularly with the rise of ISIS, it has been. Um, you know, it, it is noticeably picked up. But one thing that's slightly more light-hearted, which I found interesting, is that there was a young Muslim man there who had an, a, a huge beard, sort of Abraham Lincoln-esque beard, and he said he was so profoundly grateful to the rise of hipster culture because it had taken the um, sort of extraordinary factor out of his beard. Nowadays, he can't even swing a cat in London and in Cape Town, in fact, without hitting young men with very, very extravagant beards. And he said that he was grateful that that no longer marked him out as, you know, terrorist by definition. And with a bit of luck, Rebecca Davis will be sitting opposite me in the studio for Plan B just after half past three next week, Rebecca. Thank you.